Pop Culture Quorum Deo, episode 44, 44 Magnum, 44 years old. That's not true. Hey guys, it's Jeff. I'm here with Jared. We're here to talk about the movie Shazam, and we're glad you tuned in again to the 44th episode of the Pop Culture Quorum Deo podcast. Jared Moore, how you doing, buddy? Doing well, man. That was a good intro. You like that good. intro? It was a good job. I'm going to rap it next time. That's not true either. You need to rap. You've got enough rap in your head that you should be able to rap. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, that's true. I, I could probably break out in some several of you know very filthy songs I listened to too often <laughs> when I was a kid. They're like burned into my my brain. Our, our youth pastor warned us that they would be, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's why I burned like seventy dollars worth of CDs every other month. It seemed like, <laughs> and then bought hundred. Then we bought them back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all this before the day of MP3, I could just be like, "Yep, deleted my hard drive." <laughs> Yeah, for real. <laughs> Go back and get them from Amazon. Anyway, that's not what people are here to listen to us talk about, Jared. So you're doing okay? I'm doing well, man. I'm a soccer dad. I just got back from soccer with my kids. Did you Did you take them and bring them back in a minivan? Uh, my wife did. I, I drove separate because I had to get a charger for my uh, battery from my riding lawnmower. How oh, fascinating. This yes. episode brought to you by We Are Old. We are old, and you should see my mower. I think it's older than you and I put together. Okay. I mean, since we're just going completely boring to open up the episode here, today I stayed home to mow my yard because if I let it go much longer, it's going to be declared a wildlife preserve, and I won't be able to let it go any further. Dude, mine is there right now. Went to start my lawnmower. Key broke off in the ignition. True story. (laughs) True stinking story. Sanctification meter went to almost totally bottomed out in that moment. Uh, but thankfully, I live near my dad. So I was like, okay, cool. Just go up there and get dad's mower. Drive it down to the house. Deal with this later. Go up to get dad's mower. No gas. Go over to the little <laughs> store near us. Fill the mower up with gas. Come back. Mower won't start. <laughs> Dude, I wish I could just follow you around today without you knowing and see all those things happen to you. <laughs> I, really, I think I radiated heat. I was so angry. <laughs> oh, that would have made my day for real, man. If I could see the future, like I would, I would just took off today. Well, I, I was off today. I would just came down and hung out with you so I could see all that. I was boiling furious. <laughs> So, yeah, that's my day. Hey, but uh, I'd rather talk to you about some pop culture stuff, since that's the name on the billboard. You ready to get into that? Yes, sir. All right, man. So you know what the uh, first segment is here, Jared. We're going to start talking about... What you watching? What you watching? What you watching? And Jared, what you been watching, buddy? Um, I've been watching The Office some. Steel, you're on that Office kick hard. I think that's like three episodes in a row. Yeah, I started back at the beginning again. Um, hey, can we pick a fight real quick? Yeah, sure. Uh, I actually had this. We had some. Uh, we had a young man and woman over who were doing uh, premarital counseling last night, and we got into this conversation. Have you watched Parks and Rec? Yeah, I've watched quite a bit of it. Like. Uh, Maybe four seasons, something like that. Okay. So here's reality. This is an objectively true statement. Parks and Rec is better than The Office. No way. 100%. Mm-mm. Yeah. So I don't it, think so. It made our guests furious when I said that. Um, here, here's my case. I don't necessarily think that Parks and Rec is better than the first seven seasons of The Office. But if you take The Office as a whole, Parks and Rec is better. It actually does The Office better than The Office. Really? Hmm. Yeah. The the awkwardness is more awkward. 
the quirky characters are more quirky. Uh, their lovableness is more lovable, and the comedy is just funnier. Wow. By the time you get to Robert California, the, the office is in a death spiral, and just nobody knew it. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> yeah, so that that's Dude, the fight I, I'm going to pick. At I me. like it. At me. At right, Jeff. <clears throat> Come at me, bro. Send all your hate mail. It's Jeff Wright. Mm-hmm. Um, I disagree, man. I love The Office. I've watched Parks and Rec, but it wasn't, wasn't a huge fan. I mean, it had funny parts, and I love uh, that character that you – what's his name? Ron Swanson? Ron Swanson. Yeah. Yeah, Ron's awesome. <laughs> He's my favorite character out there, but he is. I mean, you host a out. podcast with him. <laughs> That's right. That's right. He makes a lot of a lot of good statements, too, a lot of true things that are true. Absolutely uh, does. Everything he says about the government. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, and meat. That's also true. Everything he says about meat. Yeah. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, I disagree, man. I think the office is much makes you more uncomfortable, and I think it is funnier. Actually, um, Thirty See, not, Rock. Not after Michael leaves. That's the thing. After Michael leaves, it's just it's a completely less valuable show. Um, and I, you know, I don't think any season of The Office is as weak as season one of Parks and Rec. Mm-hmm. But even with the weakness of season one taken as a whole up against The Office's whole. Those last seasons drag the average down so far that yeah you got to give the you got to give the crown to Parks and Rec. I mean every episode will bust your gut funny and there's times with The Office where like Christy loves it, my wife loves it, and, and we'll continue to watch it. And I'm just like, could you please turn this off because uh, my brain is leaking out of my ear. It's just <laughs> it's inane. Anyway, so I, I think you were going to say something positive though. Oh, I love it. I laugh and laugh and laugh. And Amber gets tired of watching it, but she'll come in and she'll sit down while it's on. And then I'll I'll catch her smiling and snickering. Um, but uh, yeah, she's laughing at, not with. <laughs> she liked Parks and Rec, too. That's yeah, a wise I woman. Mean, I, I enjoy comedy and uh, com- by comedy, I mean uh, the uncomfortableness of the office kind of. I don't know. You feel. You feel nervous for them. Like, it's so... They just make you feel uncomfortable throughout the whole thing. It works. That's kind of Parks and Rec, too, right? Yeah, and, and Parks and Rec did do, in all honesty, did the awkwardness, you know, less and less as the show went on. Mm-hmm. The um, the issue for me is that in those first seven seasons, the awkwardness played out in the office where I was like, oh, my gosh, where's this going to go? And then after Michael left, basically, it played out with, can y'all just go away and... That's where I'm at on the office, man. Yeah, Michael was the best character. Um, but uh Well and, but and still, like the guys they tried to raise up again, Robert California, the Will Ferrell stuff should have been great, but it wasn't. I don't know why Andy didn't develop into an A lister, you know, as a television star, uh after what was that comedy special or excuse me, those comedy movies he was in that um the honeymoon stuff where he and guys went out hangover. to make the hangover series, yeah. I don't know why he didn't become an A-lister through that stuff or like take off with the office is like, you know, the office 2.0 manager, but <laughs> it just all, it just all fizzled out. Yeah. His character. I mean, that, that thing was basically built around Pam and Jim after, after Michael left. Right. And that's, I think it, part of the reason why I don't care for it as much because it became a rom-com and yeah. I just think that's tired. Um, or at least, the, I mean, there might be ways to do it that's not tired, but it wasn't what I saw in the office. You know, you, you kind of, in some ways, are like judging that mess up against what it used to be. Jim and Pam in a spinoff may have been better rather than just calling it the office. You know, 
Hmm. Yeah, I've, I haven't watched enough of the... I mean, I've enjoyed it, but I still love The Office, man. But uh, again, I don't know that I would recommend that to, to people. It depends on their conscience, you know? Sure. Anything else you're uh, watching? Um, I watched the, the third episode of... Uh, Oh, Twilight Zone. Did you? I've I've got it on my DVR, but I haven't watched it yet. It's like forty five minutes long, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. we can, we can, we can talk about that another time, man. Um, well, let me tell you, or let me ask you rather. You tell me. Uh, is what I meant to say. Is it better or worse than what you saw in the first two episodes? Um, I think better. Okay. Okay. Good deal. Well, it gives me a lot to look forward to then. Yeah, we can talk about it next time. Uh, okay. On in the next episode. Sure. Definitely. Uh, anything else? Um, I watched an episode of Forty Eight Hours. Oh, did you um, now, dude? I, I did really, not expect you to say that. I really enjoy Forty Eight Hours. Um, I'll put it on every now and then, and Dateline, and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, do you have to drink a Metamucil shake with it while you watch Forty Eight <laughs> Hours? That is funny. Um. <laughs> You don't like real crime drama? Oh, yeah, I do, actually. I do. I just don't ever watch 48 Hours. What was this one about? Um, This one was about... What was it about? Um, The need to stay regular in your old age? (laughs) No, it's not 60 Minutes. Um, Oh, dude, 48 Hours demographic. I bet skews pretty high. I'd say it's uh, pretty high. It's a... Oh, I can't. I can't remember it. Oh, oh, oh. it was a a night vision inferred camera thing. Well, it was wait, just what a, kind of camera? What kind of camera? Inferred. Oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. Infrared. Infrared. My bad. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful, Jared. I'm so <laughs> glad that happened. I don't want to make fun of you. Is that a word like you've only read it and you've never heard it pronounced out loud? Because I do that stuff all the time. If I've read a word and nobody's ever used it in a conversation, I'm like, how do you pronounce that? Yeah, dude, that's probably just me reading it. It's infrared, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just going to, you know how you told me you're going to make a ringtone out of me saying <laughs> you're smarter and I want to be you on last episode? Yeah. Mine's just going to be you saying, in, I don't know how you pronounce it. It's in, infared. Infared. No, it's it's not. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's infrared. It's an infared camera. <laughs> That's so good. That's what they said, dude. That's what, on 48 hours, that's what they called it. Dude, you need to adjust your hearing aids. (laughs) Get your hearing aids straightened out because they're messing with you. He was using an infrared camera. I think you dropped them in your Metamucil and put them back in and they were all cobbled up. Anyway, this this dude, I'll tell you about this dude was out at night using his little new, uh, I was going to say telescope, but it ain't telescope. Uh, Oh, what's those things on the gun? A scope. Um, he was using his scope and he was looking through it and he saw somebody walking and it record like he it somehow he recorded them. And it turns out the next day it was reported that somebody was murdered. And so he thought he caught the killer on that camera. And so that's that's what it was about. And they ended up catching a man, but it was morbid. It's just those shows reveal just how crazy sin is and how deceptive sin is. Um, I mean, it's just nuts, and it's it's crazy how they stumble upon catching people. Um, how police officers do sometimes. Right, right. They they brought in a guy just to interview him about his friend. They thought his friend had had done the crime, and it turned out this guy had. Like it was just they brought him in as a witness, and he ended up being the guilty one. 
Yeah. There's nothing crazier than true life. I really do like true crime and the stuff you read in true crime. You almost feel like I think I've said this on the podcast before. If you read it in a book, you'd be like, that's not realistic. You know, but it turns out it's actually how history played out. Oh, yeah. And uh, most when I watch those shows, man, like about half the time, I'm like, how did the jury not convict him? And the other half, I'm like, how did they convict him on such little evidence? Yeah. Yeah. Like it just blows my mind the <clears throat> the disparity between those two realities. One hundred percent. Well, I uh, I appreciate you it's, walking us. It's riveting, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's fascinating. Fascinating. What I've been stuff. watching is riveting. The only thing I have been watching, and I mean, it eclipses everything. Actually, I have watched this week. Did you Did you see Notre Dame burning today? I did. I did. I thought you were going to say the NBA playoffs, but uh no, I mean I'm I'm in. Don't get me wrong. I'm enjoying watching them, but I really feel like this year's first round is going to be all chalk. And so I don't have any I don't have any expectation that anybody's going to upset anybody. Um and mm-hmm. I, so I'm watching it, you know, lightly. But man, I was just riveted by the Notre Dame stuff today. It it's so heartbreaking to watch that go up in in flames. Oh yeah. Oh, it's awful, man. So, I, I mean, I guess I'm potentially about to alienate like half our listeners, but I'm going to throw something at you. Okay. I think our God, as we talk about in this podcast all the time, is a great storyteller, right? Yep. And he knows how to put imagery in his story. So the defining note of Notre Dame is tragedy. You know, maybe, maybe the most beautiful building ever constructed by human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, St. Peter's, okay, one or two, but like it's in it's in the very shortest list, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a monumental loss to Western culture, uh, religious history, artistic achievement. Uh, that's the defining note. Mm-hmm. But having said that, our God, who's a good storyteller, knows how to use images. Is this image best interpreted? As God's picture of what is happening to Western culture or what is happening to the Roman Catholic Church under Pope Francis's leadership? Oh, wow. Um, probably the latter, Pope Francis. Yeah, it seems like it's it's particularly Catholic, right? I mean, I know it's French, and so that kind of that kind of messes up the, the analogy a little bit. But that's a Catholic church burning from within. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder if he'll stay, actually. But Oh, I think he will. I mean, you know, he he is so clueless. Did you see that he had Benedict come out to write about the sexual scandal? No, I didn't. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's worth going to read. Benedict's been, uh, you know, he's getting made fun of on social media because the the analysis that the pithy analysis that Twitter produces right mm-hmm. um, is that he's blaming everything that went wrong in the church's sexual scandal on the sixties. Oh my goodness! But here's the thing, man. Benedict has a sharp theological mind. You know that was one of the things I really appreciated about his papacy. At least he knew what Catholicism was and where the where the boundaries were. Uh-huh. And if you go back and read some of his stuff when he was. A cardinal, he also really knew how to read culture, and he called a lot of this stuff and found a lot of the the roots. Uh, and he's right the the consequences of the upheaval of societal norms in the '60s are continuing to reverberate into 2020. And who knows how much further they'll go? But they began a process of eroding, uh, you know, human flourishing 
boundary markers mm-hmm. and we're we're just continuing to live to live in the breaking of the dam that came with their removal mm-hmm. and I, you know you watch all these people who like I mean, you know me i'm I, I consider myself a son of the reformation i'm not i'm not uh I'm not afraid to sign a confession that says the Pope is the Antichrist, right? The second London. Sure. But, you know, Ratzinger, Benedict, whatever you call him, on this stuff, he's right. And we should be listening to him. But Francis is using him as a way to not have to be bothered with it. You know, he's treated the sexual scandal all along like it was some kind of uh, conspiracy theory against the mm-hmm. Catholic Church. And he, he trots Benedict out to, to deal with it because he won't. He is uh, He is a dumpster fire. Yeah. And I mean, I say that as a guy who like, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm going to be opposed to a pope, but even looking at like a pope as a cultural ally. Yes. He is awful. And uh, he is awful. the best Wishing thing, she- yeah, the best thing the Lord could do for the Roman Catholic Church would be to, to remove him. Yeah. Uh, I'm not calling, you know, I'm not calling for violence, certainly, or anything else. I'm just saying like things aren't going to get better until until Francis is no longer the pope. Yeah, can they can they remove him? Can the in their the cardinals get together or something? Yeah, man. But I mean, Francis is he's he's a politician and he's part of this political group that basically conspired to get him elected. I don't think there's any way. Um, he, you know, he's clearly uh, he's clearly willing to ignore the biggest scandals in the church's you know recent history. Anyway. Mm-hmm. He's clearly willing to ignore countless faithful Roman Catholics who hold to traditional morals. I don't know if there's a mechanism left in the church that could fight his political alliances. Mm. Well, I'm hoping that one day when he's gone that the pendulum swings hard the other way um, with whoever's after him. Because the thing is, the the morals is, and government um, – the Catholic Church has a ton of pull, and yeah, we need them for the cultural issues. Yes, we do. And um, I mean, honestly, I think if they, I mean, if you got a pope in there who was willing to force discipline to those who are in favor of abortion, I mean, you think of how many pro-choice Democrats in politics there are. Um, I mean, they're they're supposed to. Uh, they're supposed to be disciplined um, right now, and if if somebody got in leadership in that uh, group in that in the Catholic Roman Catholic Church um, that forced that that forced them that forced those under them as the vicar of Christ, which he's obviously not, but um, if he exercised that authority, man, I mean, it would you would see you would see an exodus. Um, yeah, I think you. I think you, you would see the Joe Bidens of the world quickly become Anglo-Catholics and go to a liberal Anglican primate, basically, is what I think would happen there. But it would be better for the Roman Catholic Church for it to play out like that. I think I think we would I think we would see it. Uh, I think that and that alone could based on the culture right now. I think that would produce enough of a wave to push it over the top um, to where to where abortion would be um, outlawed. Hey man, there's great stuff happening in Texas right now, and some other states, and so praise the Lord, we may see it even with a a pope that's, yeah, a pope that's tearing things down from the inside. So, um, I mean, we started talking about Notre Dame. I, I do think this is like imagery of uh, of something. The Lord either telling us this is what's happening to the West, or this is what's happening to 
the Roman Catholic Church in your day. Um, but the the bottom line is this is a tragedy, and we're all diminished as a global population. Like the world is a little bit lesser when Notre Dame is destroyed. Um, I, I did see some sweet clips. Like, I mean, people are just programmed to resonate with things that look like holy places. Did you mm-hmm. see the group of people outside singing Ave Maria? No, I didn't. Yeah, I mean, it was, again, like theologically, you have to set that aside. Like theologically, that's a train wreck. But um, the fact that they're recognizing that something beautiful and transcendent, or at least reflective of the transcendent, is being lost, mm-hmm. it's just super rare. Yeah, um, it is rare. It is rare. Yeah. So, I mean, thoughts and prayers. Uh, I don't know in what ways, you know, to... I don't even know who to really to think about needing care for the loss of Notre Dame, except that there's probably someone out there. You know, it's at the time of this recording, it's I guess it's still slightly possible this was some act of terrorism as we're recording. But it seems to be a fire that was produced in an accident, you know, connected to the renovations that are taking place at Notre Dame. I think I've used like seven uh-huh. different pronunciations so far. So <laughs> if you're keeping score out there, let me know how many I use. Um, there is somebody out there tonight who... Or there may be more than one, but there's at least someone out there tonight who thinks he's the one who or she's the one who set the fire at Notre Dame, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's somebody out there who thinks if I had just went back and double checked or I had just went and told them not to do X, Y, Z, that person's out there. You've got that guy. Who, he's a he's a Roman Catholic priest who's the head architect. Um, you've got people who are in uh, curatorial roles for Notre Dame. I mean, man, there's a lot of people out there right now who are deeply, deeply hurt. And uh, I hope mm. I hope there's someone watching them because particularly the guy who thinks or the woman who thinks they set the blaze or they did the thing that led to the blaze. I yeah. can't imagine the kind of uh, the kind of pain they're in right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And there there's no <laughs> I don't know if they figure out who it is. I assume there'll be charges depending, right? Well, I mean, if it's an accident, no. But here, the thing I really hope is that they don't release the person's name. I, I don't want to know that, and I hope nobody knows that name. That is just something that history should not have access to. Yeah. Um, if it's an accident, you know, if it's a terrorist, if it's something like that, because we're seeing European churches. I think I read that like two European churches are desecrated a day, which sounds crazy. I didn't track it down, but like as Europe continues to secularize and then paganize. Um, that's going to continue to happen. You know, we saw uh, in Norway historic churches being burned by the the black metal community there back in the I think it was the nineties. This stuff's going to keep happening, but I think right now it seems like this was an accident. And if it was an accident, just say a team of restorers or something. Don't 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 single out individuals. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. It's awful though. I mean, it's sad all the way around. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're all diminished, man. I really do mean that. Um, and you just wonder, like, with the extent of the damage, will there be enough money chipped in? You know, France was paying for like two thirds of the renovation of the the cathedral anyway. And I think I read the Roman Catholic Church was having a hard time hustling up their third. Oh wow! And that was just renovation. I mean, what happens when you have to start rebuilding? How was the Roman Catholic Church having a hard time coming up with a third? I don't know, man. I just read that they were like, they thought they initially could fundraise it through European donors and realized pretty quickly that wasn't going to take place. And so they started going to America saying, (laughs) we need y'all to chip in too. And I don't know where that stood. I think this will probably, 
you know, watching that fire will probably provoke people to give, but the need now is so much more pronounced. And those famous okay. rose windows, I was reading, um, I think it was Rod Dreher. He said some of that goes back to the time of Dante. So it was, I think it, it was begun in 1170 and completed like a hundred years later and then added on to over the centuries. Um, but they, they were specifically saying uh, on a YouTube video I watched that we're not entirely sure how those rose windows were made anymore. They're so old we've forgotten the technique. Wow. And it's just incredible what we've lost. Man, that's awful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's weird to think, but there is a um there was a there was an organization taking up money to to fund restoration. It's weird for me to think that I would give money to a French Roman Catholic cathedral restoration project, but I may. Yeah. I may. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting, man. Yeah. Well, that's a down note. You got anything else to talk about on what you're watching? No, I think that's it, buddy. All right, man. Well, we will bring it to a close, and that will put us into our second world-famous segment. So sorry to interrupt. Uh, Jared, I got several things to throw at you. Uh, One is an update from last week's episode where we talked about the rise of streaming services and how you know, basically, we're all returning to the pre-cord cutter price points with all the different streaming services. Yep. <clears throat> did you see that Disney announced their pricing? I did not. $6.99 a month. That is low, man. We'll buy that for sure. Yeah, I think we will, too. Uh, do you think they're trying to cut Netflix's throat, or are they trying to just wedge themselves into Netflix's market? Um, I think both. I mean, they wouldn't. I don't think it would hurt their feelings if Netflix was gone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me throw a couple projects they've announced already. This sounds crazy. So The Simpsons, you know, because Walt Disney recently acquired Fox, The Simpsons will only stream on the Disney Plus streaming service. Hmm. They have announced uh, they are developing a series called The Mandalorian, which I guess is connected to Boba Fett, but it's part of the Star Wars universe. Uh Uh-huh. And they described it as Clint Eastwood in the Star Wars universe, which is like, take my money. You know, I'm there. Oh, yeah. Uh, They are developing a Hawkeye uh, television show, I guess. And Jerry is going to star in it. Oh, wow. Yep. That is awesome. Yeah, I'll watch that. They're talking about a Hulk and She-Hulk series that Mark Ruffalo uh, is slotted to star in. She-Hulk. I've never really. Have you read She-Hulk stuff? Yeah, I have. She-Hulk is, uh, I think most of the time, she's a cousin of Bruce Banner, and she got a blood donation from him when her life was in danger. Hmm. And so it permanently transformed her into the She-Hulk, but she retained her intelligence. And she's an huh. interesting character. She's a, she's a lawyer and uh, you know kind of fights crime on both fronts. But because she lives permanently in the alter ego state... You know, she becomes a celebrity and stuff. The problem with She-Hulk, and why I gave up reading anything about her, is that she became hypersexualized. Like, she was a really sexually aggressive character. Hmm. And I just, cool, man, that's not what I'm coming to comic books for, and I just pieced out on it. But Mm -hmm. the idea of, you know, she's permanently transformed, and she lives in public as She-Hulk, and has a legal career and stuff, that's all interesting fodder for story. If you know if they do something like that, I'll definitely watch it. If they turn her into 
what I checked out in the comics was I, yeah, I don't care if Mark Ruffalo's in it, who, you know, I really like Mark Ruffalo. I'm sure you do too, but mm-hmm. it's just not going to be enough to make me watch, watch that kind of dreck. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then the, the last one they've announced is a Rogue One prequel series hmm. that um, Alan Turdick is going to be back for. And uh, if you remember, he was the guy who played the droid in Rogue One. Okay. So, that, you know, everybody coming out of Rogue One was like, why'd they kill the droid? That was the best part of them. Which, don't get me wrong, I really liked Rogue One. I liked it much better than The Last Jedi. Um, but everybody was like, why'd you kill the droid? It was the best part of the of the movie. And it looks like we're going to get a chance to spend some more time with him. That's, all those sound great, man. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm going to I'm gonna be buying this. On, uh, on Less Happy Returns um, and Less Optimistic News... Did you did you pay attention to the box office this week? No, huh? Well, Shazam, the subject of this uh, episode, it held on to the number one spot. It brought in twenty five million, so like a little less than half of what it got in opening weekend. Oh wow! Uh, a movie that I'm totally unfamiliar with called Little was number two at fifteen point five. But the real shocker is that Hellboy opened at number three with just twelve million dollars. Oh wow! Um. And then Missing Link, which you and I have talked about how terrible I thought that movie looked. And I think you you were in the same mind state. Um, mind state? I think I just invented that. Um, it, it, it had the worst opening. Or maybe, I'm sorry. One of the worst openings ever for a movie that releases in 3,000 theaters. It opened mm. at number nine with $5.8 million. I wonder how much money they spent on that thing. Yeah, that's a good question. I'd like to know too. I mean, it's got some like it's got some big voice acting in it. Yeah, it's uh, got the dude who was on Chipmunks, right? Oh, I was thinking about Hugh Jackman. Isn't that the guy who who does most of it? Um, I think I think that's the dude the the oh the explorer in the movie yeah. based on the preview, and then the comedian, the missing link thing is uh. The guy who's in Chipmunks, um, I can't think of his name. Well, I didn't know about Chipmunks, but it's Zach Galifianakis, isn't it? Oh, is it? I didn't realize it was Zach. Oh, um, I think so. I thought it was a dude with the glasses. Um, oh, oh, that guy. <laughs> that narrowed it yeah, down. <laughs> in the Chipmunks. Gosh. <laughs> I have no idea, man. I'm sorry. I'm picking on you. Uh, but, I mean, dude, so Pet Cemetery didn't set the world on fire. Dumbo fell in the dumpster. Hellboy has now fallen in the dumpster. And uh, Missing Link is like beneath the dumpster in the sewer. (laughs) (laughs) Hollywood is not having a good week. It's David Wellums. It's not uh, Zach Galifianakis. Are you sure? Are are you sure you're not confusing that with Stephen Wellum? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Theology nerd alert. That's funny. Okay. Well, I I sit corrected then. Either way, nobody made any money off of that one. (laughs) Okay. And it looked awful. So I'm glad it's suffering. <laughs> I have schadenfreude when, when bad movies get what they deserve. Did uh, did Missing Link look to you like sort of a um, uh, a transgenderism delivery vehicle? I didn't see that based on the previews, but I, maybe I just wasn't looking good enough. Yeah, I mean, you know, this idea that like he's a, he's a creature who doesn't belong in traditional society and I think the creature, you know, is is voice acted by someone who's male, but he he adopts a female name. Um, oh, it, it just, yeah. It just started raising my my cautionary, you know, radar. Like, beware. Mm-hmm. So, 
But Shazam made some more money. It fell off 53%. I looked up statistically. Uh, Pet Cemetery fell off 59%. Maybe it was just pretty weather. Nobody wanted to go to the movie, but it, it's not, you know, it's not shaping up as a banner spring. Of course, Avengers Endgame is going to land and take everyone's money. But uh, right now, right now, there's not a lot of, a lot of good news coming out of the box office. Yeah, and there's a lot of competition, man. I mean, there's just there's so much to watch and so much to do. There's too many things. Um, most people, I think most people probably, you know, they, they start their entertainment week by saying, is there a new pop culture quorum Deo episode? That's true. And after that, who knows where they're going to go? Maybe they're going to go see a movie. Maybe they're going to stream some stuff. Maybe they're going to go to Redbox. But we, we leave such a wake as I can see how Hollywood's having a hard time keeping up. Yes. Yes. I think that's it. People come here first to figure out what they're going to watch. So 48 hours is going to get enough to <laughs> <laughs> This episode brought to you by Metamucil. <laughs> Thankful what to have Metamucil? Metamucil come on as a, as a an advertiser <laughs> and supporter of the Pop Culture Corumdale podcast. You know what Metamucil is? It's drinkable fiber. Oh, is it really? See, I don't even know what it is. How do you know what it is? You had it? I have cared for senior members of my family. <laughs> How about that? Okay. How about that? I pulled a good guy card on you. You did. You you did. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> oh, let me tell you. I, speaking of, so I stuck my foot in my mouth and it reminded me. <laughs> I got my... I got my, uh, I, I did my taxes last night, dude. Mm-hmm. So I had to get, I had to enter my wife's license in order to try to e-file. Mm-hmm. And I I get her license and it came out of my mouth before I realized what I said. But I said, are you pregnant in this picture? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was too late. Oh my word. Jamie. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, uh, <laughs> She said, no, do I look pregnant in that picture? And um, anyway, I was just dead. Uh, Dude, what is that? What is that <laughs> thing that samurais do when they fall on their sword? Is, is it Bushido or Seppuku or whatever? Dude, you should have you should have pulled out a sword and just fell forward. Like I wish I <laughs> like Saul and Jonathan, man, just fall on your sword and die right there. I wish I could have instantly went to sleep or something like just <laughs> fell over and because <laughs> I, I just I was on it. I like the first thing when I first saw the picture, I was thinking, oh, she must have been pregnant with you. this, <laughs> But it was like a year and two months after. So anyway, um, you know, that story in King David's life where like I think he's running from Absalom and he starts faking like he's a crazy person and drooling on himself and stuff. <laughs> Yeah. That's 100% the play you should have ran, man. <laughs> like, honey, take me to the ER. I think I'm having a stroke. Just, you you gotta you gotta resort to desperate measures at that point. It was bad. And then she's boring. beautiful. She, she's not, I mean, she's, she's little. She's not, mm-hmm. it was just a stupid question that came out of my mouth. Yes, sir. Everything <laughs> you just said is true. Oh, I'm sorry. If, I'm sorry, uh, any listeners. Men learn from me, and women. I'm sorry for what I for what I said. What's that cliche like? <laughs> you know, better to keep your mouth shut and not reveal that you're a fool than open it and <laughs> you know let everybody remove all doubt or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't think you're a fool, dude. But in that moment, that was not. You were basically having the husband version of what's happening at the box office for Hollywood right now. That's exactly right. Not a lot of good moves. It was the dirty taxes, man. Government getting me. Yeah. 
Hashtag taxation is theft. Support your local libertarians. Uh, yeah, dude. It is it is crazy what we what we have to deal with in April. Oh, uh, um, all right, man. Well, the last thing I'm kind of burying the lead here, but I thought we'd save it to the last. We got a new Star Wars trailer. Yes. Our, uh, you know, let's just recap for listeners who didn't hear our episode on the Last Jedi. Uh, is it is it fair to say that that we hated that movie? Yeah, I mean, not hate it. I wouldn't say hate it. I liked it better than you did. Okay, well, I uh, definitely hated it. It's because you're a, I don't know, you know way too much about Star Wars. Like, I'm that, you're, you're right. That's true. I'm, I'm like depressingly nerdish about Star Wars. And, and by far, out of every pop culture franchise, I've spent more time with it than any other set of stories. So you're right. So I'm blissfully unoffended by The Last Jedi. Man, they threw away Luke Skywalker. They, you know... They told all the fans like myself who were committed and paying attention to like go take a long walk off a short cliff and yeah that that I mean that movie is a, is a, you know you, you hear some movies that are like a love letter that movie is a hate letter it's a hate tweet to the most committed members of the fan base and it looks like they're trying to retcon some of that. What do you mm-hmm. think about the trailer? I thought it was. Um... They're trying to. It looked like they were trying to undo the Last Jedi. Yeah, I think that's right. I think even the title, like the Rise of Skywalker, is mm-hmm. no, 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 no. We're sorry. We're sorry. We took a dump on the Skywalker <laughs> legacy. <laughs> He's gonna rise from the dead. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I mean, just some things I noticed. So, listen, friend, if if you don't want to have a trailer spoiled, which by the way, I'm I'm totally sympathetic. I just couldn't help but watch this one. Um, because of that aforementioned Star Wars fandom, uh, it looks like we're getting Kylo Ren and the helmet back. Mm-hmm. It looks like we're getting sweet lightsaber battles again. Um, and it sounded a whole lot like Emperor Palpatine laughing at the back end of that trailer. Yeah, but was I, it? I thought it was Skywalker. Well, Skywalker is the one doing the voiceover. But it sounded to me like right when he says at the very end of the trailer, um, no one is ever really gone. The next thing we hear is what sounded to me again like Palpatine laughing. Oh, okay. Hmm. So we, I don't know, my interest is peaked. I would be there to watch that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I keep reading online that the powers that be that control Star Wars think that there's Star Wars fatigue and they're going to slow down the movies they're releasing and whatnot. It's just a classic case in my mind of of Hollywood executives not being able to read the room. I don't think there's Star Wars fatigue. If anything, like my kids are chomping at the bit for more Star Wars content. They love it. Mm-hmm. I think we we have fatigue for terrible stories that throw away what we loved about the the original movies. Yeah, we're all mm-hmm. tired of that. Thanks. Tell Ryan Johnson, thanks, but no thanks. I'm more of that. But, you know, give us some stuff that uh, that says, hey, what happened in the first three movies? I say the first three, the classic trilogy, the original trilogy. That stuff mattered. And the characterization that developed in those characters over that time, that's going to be that's going to be reflected in the new stories. If you give us that, I don't think there's any fatigue. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you use that to, like, hand the the world off to the next generation, you know, basically, hey, we came, we did what we needed to in our era. Now it's your time to make use of it. You know, you can have a handing of the baton. I think people love Ray, mm-hmm. but you can't do it by saying you were stupid to love the the previous generation. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, I you want agree me to climb off my soapbox? And yeah, yeah, I'll uh, I'll take off my stormtrooper outfit now and uh, stop embarrassing everybody. Tell them, hey, everybody, go. Uh, <clears throat> 
if you want to hear Jeff get, get upset for an hour or so, go listen to uh, our uh, our episode on the Last Jedi. Yeah, that was a bit of a rager. <laughs> that was a bit of a rager. <laughs> it's not a good place there. You can also see our write up on Pathios dot com. Yeah, yeah. All right, man. Well, that's about the end of So Sorry to Interrupt for me, unless you got something else you want to talk about. No, that's it, man. <clears throat> All right. Well, it is time to pay the bills. Our feature review for this episode, which is the 2019 DC Extended Universe phenomenon, Shazam. You ready to pull the curtain on that one, Jared? Yes, sir. All right, guys. What we do here, if you're not familiar, is we go through and analyze the story of the movies we look at in comparison to the story that God is telling about his son, Jesus Christ. And we're going to do that with Shazam. Uh, But before we get started there, we're going to read the synopsis, and then Jared's going to start the conversation about a conscience warning for those Christians who uh, may want to see this movie but need to be alerted about uh, anything that might trouble them uh, morally in the movie. But man, after that, after I read specifically the synopsis, we are in full-blown spoiler territory. And if you continue listening from that point on, we assume that you're happy to have the plot details spoiled or discussed. If that's not you, we really appreciate you listening so far. Hit pause. Go watch this movie. uh, Come back and resume the episode. We'll be here waiting on you. And you can pick back up and and enjoy the rest of the episode without having the details ruined. So uh, we're good to go here, Jared, on the, the synopsis. Yeah. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to IMDb again. They, they do a good job. You tell me what we're missing. Here's the IMDb synopsis for Shazam. We all have a superhero inside us. It just takes a little bit of magic to bring it out. I actually think that's a Joel Osteen quote. <laughs> that's funny right there. In Billy Batson's case, by shouting out one word, Shazam, this streetwise 14-year-old foster kid can turn into the grown-up superhero, Shazam. Anything I'm missing there, bud? No, that looks good. Sounds good. Uh, It doesn't sound good to me because it's stupid. It's stupid that his name is the wizard's name. They 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 initially they've updated IMDb since then, but I went after watching this movie premiere, and they had Zachary Levi who plays the hero. They had him listed as Shazam or Champion Shazam, and they had Jamon Honsu who plays the wizard as Wizard Shazam. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I've I've already been ranting on this, but Dad Gummit just call him Captain Marvel. Fans are smart enough to know that Marvel has a Captain Marvel and DC has a Captain Marvel. And if you're gonna make some kind of change, don't give two characters the same name, okay? Please. I'm I'm done. I'm done ranting about that stupid decision. But I just I needed to get that off my chest. That's good. All right, man. Conscience warning. Uh, what would you highlight for a thoughtful listener that they might want to be on guard about going into this movie? Um, they, they go, he goes to a, uh, so what, what can I call Zachary Levi's character? Jeff? Oh, call him Shazam. Name. I'm sorry. I'm I'm so sorry that I've done that to you. And it's kind of you to be like, don't take off the psycho. <laughs> Just call him Shazam. Shaz- we're, we're living in a crazy world. So let's do it. Shazam goes to a gentleman's club a couple times. They act nonchalantly about it. Like it's funny. Um, you know, I think there's some derogatory terms about women's bodies that said, um, and there's some there's some other language, and there's some really scary scenes like that. There, there's a scene in the office uh, when the seven deadly sins 
uh, go in there and clean house. That is one of the scary. That's a, one of the scariest scenes I've seen in a while in a, in a scary movie. You mean in a superhero movie? I mean just in a scary movie. I thought oh, it was okay. Okay. Yeah, I thought it was really well done. Good grief! Like smoke, you couldn't see, and all of a sudden you see like ten people trying to get out of that room, and then they disappear. It's just well, like their bodies hit the the glass. Like it's a it's a frosted glass but you see like bodies slammed up against it yeah <clears throat> yeah that's something i want to talk about in the notes section so there is quite a bit of violence and, and scares here but if you if you would serve me let's talk about that more fully here in just a minute sure uh you said they go to a strip club twice mm. we don't see yeah. anything inside there but they you know we know what it is um there's some foul language there's some some legitimately scary stuff uh, i think some christians aren't cool with the portrayal of magic mm-hmm. um, and that, I mean, you can't get away from it in this. This is all about some magic. Yeah. Um. I mean, obviously, there's going to be some violence, although it's pretty cartoony, all things considered. Sure. Um, CG. Yeah. And just, I mean, like one time, you know, Shazam catches a falling bus by holding the windshield. Yeah. You know, and you're like, okay, this is a cartoon for real. Um. So I, I mean, I think those are the conscience issues. You can always check plugged in for more specific accounting of, you know, foul language and things like that. But those are the those are the ones that stand out to me and Jared. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll consider the uh, the conscience warning wrapped up here. Um, so you brought up the fact that this movie is legitimately legitimately scary. And uh, I'm 100 percent with you. In fact, it. It has so much scary stuff in it that I wonder what the reaction is going to be from parents who expect to go see a cartoonish superhero movie. And they mm-hmm. don't, you know, they don't do their homework and they show up and they see the seven deadly sin monsters doing crazy stuff. I wonder if there won't be pushback from, you know, m- moms looking for an afternoon movie to watch with their kids and they don't realize how stinking scary it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder that too. Like if it, I had read about the, um, read about the gentleman's club junk and decided not to take my kids, but the scary stuff would have warped them too, like messed with them. Yeah. So I, I knew that I, after I watched it, that I wouldn't take my 10 year old because he can read and say, dad, what's a gentleman's club and why is that funny? And I didn't want to deal with that. Yeah. Um, but then the the kid of mine who's most psyched to see this movie is my six year old, and he uh, because we held him back uh, from starting school, he is chomping at the bit to read. He recognizes a lot of letters, but he can't quite. He's not quite reading, mm-hmm. so I won't have to deal with that with him. But I told him this thing is so scary. I think it will give you nightmares. And if we go watch it, you have to agree that I can put my hand over your eyes at any point and you not try to squirm around and see see around what I'm uh, what I'm blocking your eyes from seeing. And he was OK mm-hmm. with that. I think there's a sweet spot, I guess, is what I'm saying with kids where you could be like, yeah, we're not going to deal with the, the strip club stuff and I'll just shield you from the super scary stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even before the seven deadly sins show up, um, there's a scene where Dr. Savannah, who's the bad guy, he's working with a doctor trying to track down all these different people who had an encounter with the wizard. Mm-hmm. And he finally figures it out. He writes these magic glyphs on a on a door and the doctor touches the door and she turns to ash. And I was like, that was super scary. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, the guy who made this is David Sandberg. He's a Swedish director. Um, he's got legit horror chops. Like he, he in in Sweden was making shorts 
and doing like advertising and animation. Mm-hmm. And he made a short called Lights Out that some Hollywood company saw and said, let's do a feature film. And so he went straight from like never working on a movie set to making to being the director of a full-fledged horror movie. Mm-hmm. Horror, uh, you know, I'm, I watch a lot of horror movies. Lights Out's a pretty good horror movie as a one-off. Then he got the helm of the Conjuring Universe's um, Annabelle sequel. You know, I, I didn't care for the first Annabelle movie, but he did a really good job with Annabelle the Conjuring, or excuse me, the uh, creation. creation. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder if he doesn't know how to dial it down. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. He knows how to be super scary, but he doesn't know how to be slightly scary. He's got a lot of good shorts. I mean, you can go find them on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, he. I mean, he. He's one of the examples of like you, uh, Hollywood people going for non traditional creators and it really working. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, again, this guy knows how to make stuff scary, and I don't. <laughs> I don't know that he knows how to throttle it, and it comes through loud and clear here. Mm-hmm. Um, another note here, uh, and I guess I'm leading with some stuff that's going to sound negative. I was much more happy about this movie than I thought I, I would be. Uh, previous listeners know I have a real affection for the Captain Marvel character that dates back to Fawcett uh, comics. And uh, I, I don't care for what has been done with the character in recent days by a DC writer named Jeff Johns. But I knew this movie was based on Jeff Johns' story, so I thought I'm going to hate this from go. Uh, again, I enjoyed this much more than I thought I would. But there are three negatives that I guess I want to talk about in film notes. The first just being that I think some parents are going to be surprised by how scary it is, what we just got in talking about. <clears throat> Have you seen the the buzz around this uh, movie that it's got the first gay superhero in it? No, huh? Yeah, this is, I don't think it's been officially confirmed, but to, you know, to give the ending of the movie away, again, we're fully in spoiler territory. Billy Batson, who becomes Shazam, finds out that his family members, the adopted, uh, the the foster family that he's a part of, uh, the other kids there, I think there's six of them, that if they say Shazam, they become versions of Shazam as well. And they have superpowers and, you know, they, they get their own moment in the sunlight as superheroes. Mm-hmm. Well, one of those kids is played by Jovan Armand, and, and the character he's playing is Pedro Pena. He's just another one of the foster kids living at the uh, at the foster home Billy does. And um, at one point, trying to escape from some danger, uh, Billy, as Shazam, teleports the group of kids away from danger and they're going to go to the first place he can think of. And it's that strip club we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. So the kids come pouring out of the, the gentleman's club and uh, one of the, the older uh, female characters, the, the, the oldest young lady in that foster home says, really, that's the only place you could think of. And so they're, you know, again, it's played for yucks. Um, but Pedro turns to another one of the foster siblings and says, eh, it's not my thing. Yeah. And so everybody has seized on that and said, oh, it's the first gay superhero character that, you know, whatever version of Shazam that Pedro turns into, he's going to be gay. Mm. And like you you can find lots of headlines about this on lots of websites since this movie came out. Um, Did you when you I mean, I'm sure you noticed that. What did you think when you heard him deliver that line? I didn't know. I mean, because it's Hollywood, man. um, I mean, I assumed I assume that, you know. Yeah. I assume exactly what they're saying. Um, 
but it's just because it's because it's Hollywood, you know. There, and this movie has not been. I want to talk about this about how I mean, even the Seven Deadly Sins, one of them's lust, and I mean the fact that they're going to a strip club and this guy's supposed to be Mister Moral. Uh, it's just ridiculous. But yeah, well, so I'm with you. I heard that and I thought that's probably setting him up to be gay. Yeah. But when I was thinking about this movie afterwards, it just overwhelmed me with depression that we are at a place as a society that assumes a kid who gets the chance is going to go in the most misogynistic and sexist fashion possible, ogle women taking their clothes off for money, right? Like, Mm -hmm. as a culture, we assume that's how kids will act. And I do not deny that there are kids who will act that way. Mm -hmm. But we just assume it's a blanket, right? Yeah. And we also assume that the only kind of kid who would look at a gentleman's club, know what was going on inside of there. I say a kid, a male kid who would, you know, know what was happening inside a gentleman's club and look at that and say, it's not my thing. We're at a point where the only category we have for that is that guy's gay. Mm -hmm. I I mean, again, Notre Dame burning. Our culture is a dumpster fire. Mm-hmm. That you know, it would probably probably be seen as too unrealistic for a guy like Pedro to say, you know, that is just not the kind of relationship I want to have with women and sexuality. Not my thing. Mm-hmm. That can't be that he's got a different moral framework. Can't be that he has seen through again sexism and misogyny and rejected it. It's got to be mm-hmm. that he's gay. Yeah, it it drives me up the wall, man. And it says something about what a dark, dark place we're in with human sexuality. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we've talked about this before. I feel like we have. But <clears throat> C.S. Lewis has this uh, analogy. I think it's in Mere Christianity where he says, imagine you go to a planet and there are theaters where people in isolated booths watch as a cover is slowly lifted to reveal a piece of steak. And he says, if you can imagine that world and visiting that world, would you not immediately conclude that something had gone terribly wrong with their view of food and eating? And he makes the analogy to sexuality and how we consume sex outside of marriage. And like often is the case, C.S. Lewis really nails us. Pedro Pena is another example of that. We're, we're just so broken, we can't think of anybody who wouldn't like a strip club as a male except a gay guy. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't know, um, but I think if I were a gay person, I would be offended by that. (laughs) That, you know, I'm being defined by rejecting the basest form of interacting with feminine sexuality. Mm -hmm. It's just frustrating. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, this is the mainstream, right? This is, uh, it's expected. There's no, there's no self-control expected. There's no... Um, you know, no, nothing, nothing like human dignity. I mean, like, like you're talking about earlier at the very beginning of the episode with, um, we're, we're living off of, uh, of the sixties where all those boundaries are gone, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, it's just assumed that, um, you know, that everybody's going to be immoral. They're going to be the product of their appetites, right? Instead yeah. of exercising, Self-control or... um, Or practicing virtue. Yeah. I mean, obviously, as Christians, we have good reasons and resources to reject strip clubs, even to reject the label Gentleman's Club. Oh, yeah. But in a post-Me Too world, anybody who cares to pay attention without interacting with an actual strip club 
can pretty quickly find out that these kind of institutions feed on the exploitation of vulnerable women. They're Mm -hmm. often linked to human trafficking. The supposed virtues of our culture in the moment where women are to be valued apart from objectification, strip clubs run right in the face of that. But again, for all of the high-minded public talk about having a higher view of women, we all run to see this movie where the only person who thinks a strip club is not all that appealing is the gay dude. Mm. That's cool. That's cool, Hollywood. Well done. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it, it's not high. I mean, it, you know, Hollywood's version of a high view of women is whatever a woman wants to do, she should be able to do, you know? Yeah, but and, again, I'm going to point out that strip clubs run up against that because they're often employing women who feel like they have no other economic options or they've literally been kidnapped and forced into human trafficking and kept doped up so they'll dance. Yeah. I mean, any any set of ethical presuppositions you come at, even even the world's, you know, more empty ones, this mm-hmm. is stupid. This is deeply stupid and, and hypocritical and self-contradictory. But you just yeah. pull up a Google search of first gay superhero and people are celebrating it as if it's progress. Crazy. Evil. Evil. And calling evil good and good evil. That, you know, I said C.S. Lewis nailed us. Isaiah, by the inspiration of the Spirit, did a long time before he did. Uh, the mm. last one, and again, I know we're starting off negative here. I think there's a lot to celebrate about this movie. But did you feel like this movie had to take hard shots at the traditional family in order to set up um, the goodness of the foster family? I didn't I didn't take it that way. Um I didn't take it that way at all. I thought they were trying to trying to create a traditional family. I mean, you, you got a man and a woman with a bunch of kids, you know? Yeah. Well, so you may be right, but let me let me throw why I'm asking that at you and see if there's any credibility to it, okay? Sure. Sure. So the first people we meet in this movie uh, is the family that produces the bad guy. And the bad guy's a kid riding down the road with his older brother and his father. And they're just belittling him on this car ride. You mm-hmm. remember that? Yeah. And they're tormenting him, telling him he's not good enough. Everything's his fault. Eventually, there's this major car wreck. It wounds the dad deeply. Both the dad and the brother like assign the guilt to him. Uh, Savannah gets taken into the wizard's cavern, succumbs to temptation, hears from the wizard, you're not good enough. And the combination of the two basically set him on a path of evil, right? Mm-hmm. But did you notice that in um, in the car ride, as they're setting up, like, look how awful Savannah's family life was, that the the dad and the brother are telling him to, like, stop blaming people for your problems and toughen up? Mm-hmm. That struck me as so weird, because one of the things I think dads are supposed to help sons do is to take self-responsibility mm-hmm. and to not be driven by the emotional whims of their heart. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, out of all the ways you can show a toxic masculinity or a toxic fatherhood, you you reach into insulting him basically with like weaponized versions of good counsel that fathers should do. I mean, if you read mm-hmm. Proverbs, that's kind of a summary of, of some of the major themes of Proverbs. Yeah. Be wise. Take responsibility for yourself. Don't be driven by your passions, but, you know, choose the path of wisdom. And that's that's what's in the mouth of the of the people who create the monster. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? It does. Um, I mean, I I don't know. I just didn't take it as them 
as them scolding what the father was saying, but how he was saying it. Um, I just don't think you can separate those because that's all we get him saying. Like how he was saying it, yeah, you're right. But there's also the content, and we don't have anything else. We don't have him being like, you know, stop caring about people or, uh, you know, other monstrous things he could have said, right? Like people are here to either hold you back or help you get ahead. Like he could be doing all that, but that's not what they picked. They picked take responsibility, uh, you know, don't be governed by your passions. I don't know. So I'll put that there. Then I'm going to come back to the backside of the movie where Billy Batson has been on this quest to find his mother. Wait, 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 wait. Now that you point that out, whenever it's interesting because when the they had the car wreck, the brother turned around and places the blame on the kid instead yes. of the dad. Yes, exactly. And the dad does too, right? Because he is, can't like talk, but he's like staring bullet, uh, staring needles through Savannah and like trying to articulate what we all assume to be. Mm-hmm. You screwed this up, you know? like hypocrisy. I guess is yeah. the major point there. Sure. Hmm. Go ahead. Well, then on the backside, this is different from every comic book version of the character I've read. And I, I will confess that I gave up on Jeff Johns's initial run um, called The Curse of Shazam. But I did read, I have been reading his new set of stories that started coming out uh, at the beginning of 2019 or just the end of 2018. Mm. But in every one of the the stories that I have read... Classically, Billy has been um, this virtuous, upright, pure-spirited young man. And he ends up in foster homes with some rough characters. So he runs away and he's living homeless, right? Mm-hmm. But his parents are presented as figures of virtue. That It really is a tragedy that Billy has been orphaned. And even in uh, Jeff John's material, I don't think we have anything comparable to the movie's scene where Billy finds his mom and realizes she totally checked out on him and is self-centered and a loser. And I just thought, why did we, why was that incorporated? Because like the quest to find his mom could easily be a, a driving force in his life that doesn't have to be resolved in this movie. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And like you could even have him come to realize that the family that's right in front of him is worth loving and valuing, even as he continues to look for his mom. And there's mm-hmm. nothing inherently different about this movie if you do that. Right. But they specifically took the time to say, no, his real mom sucks. Yeah. And so when I see the the thing at the beginning and then I see the 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 addition of the thing about his birth mother, I think... This movie is pretty hard on just, you know, the traditional family created through offspring, procreation. Mm-hmm. Do you think I'm stretching too far here? Feel free to tell me if so. I don't know. This is the first time hearing of this. Um, I did not think that whenever I first watched it. And um, I don't know. I, I don't know what to what to think about that. Um, There's not really a good traditional family in this movie. Right. But there's not a. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it kind of feels to me like Jordan Peele saying there's no good white people and get out. It's not there by accident. The thing with foster kids, though, like in most movies, it's not a there's not a positive reason why the kids in the foster um, system. No, that's true. But like you, I mean, even within this movie, you've got all these kids who seem to be pretty much thriving in the home of this foster family. Yeah. So like... I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I didn't need, you know, Mary or Freddie to find out their parent was a loser and self-centered to mm-hmm. like think that they could credibly thrive 
and, and value the family that had been created by this foster parent. Sure. This set of foster parents. And so, I don't know, it just it caught me as weird. Yeah. Well, listener, feel free to contact us at PCCDPod on Twitter, Reddit, uh, PCCDPod at gmail.com. Tell me I'm crazy, or tell me if you think there's some legs to, to this thing I'm suspicious about in this movie. Okay, well enough conspiracy theory for me. Let's get into our proper analysis. Guys, if this is your first time with us, we, we look at these movies, as I've already mentioned, in comparison to the story that God's telling in history about Jesus Christ. And that story has four acts. There is creation, where God creates everything good. There's the fall, where God watches all of uh, his good creation choose the path of rebellion. And in that rebellion that is known as sin, bring death and suffering into the world. But God remains committed to his purposes, and so he deploys an agent of redemption, his perfect son, Jesus Christ, who uh, takes the weight of sin onto his shoulders, dies under God's judgment against sin, rises triumphantly from the grave, and begins the work of bringing all things into submission, uh, first to himself and then to his father. Uh, God rewards this with the creation of a bride for his son, known as the church. And through this process, we get a better world. We get a glorified new world. And so we have the fourth stage glorification. Uh, We're going to run Shazam through those filters and so, Jared, my first question to you would be, what is creational goodness in the world of Shazam? So creational goodness, it's, I guess it's today's world. And uh, very similar, uh, good men doing good. I mean, that, there, there, there are good people. Um, and I think you and I would affirm that as well. I mean, it is a – besides the magic, it, it's an accurate picture of what, you know, like any superhero story, there's evil and good men fight evil. Right, right. So it's a good thing to oppose evil. Yeah. Right. Um, there's there's quite a bit of stuff to connect with and enjoy in this movie that I think Christians can be delighted to celebrate. So friendship matters in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've talked about it already, but this is a very pro-foster care movie. And I'm sure you do in your church. We have a couple people in our church whose family has a long legacy of caring for uh, the needy and the vulnerable through foster caring. And I really feel like there's some of the, you know, the sweetest saints in the entire church, not just mine, but like people who are willing to foster are such a tremendous blessing because their hearts are subject to being torn out week by week, month by month. You know, they'll bring a child in, try to love it well, that child could be gone or they could be there for years and they're just kind of constantly always living life with their heart out on the table waiting for somebody to whack it. And uh, this movie sets that kind of self-sacrificing care up front and says, look, this is really beautiful and something to be celebrated. So uh, anything else we're missing there? I mean, this is a, this is basically a moral world that, that recognizes that people who exploit others for their own ends, uh, people who seek revenge, are wicked, and then the good people are the ones who are going to stand against them. That's pretty pretty clear, right? Yeah. All right, so what about fallenness? Fallenness happens when, um, well, with what with great power comes great responsibility, and when people with the power to do something don't do it, that's the fall. Yeah, so you're thinking about like when Shazam, with all his superpowers, chooses to go buy beer yeah. or – Hit on women or um, 
specifically to like just go to the park and try to get people to pay him for selfies. Right. Yeah. Um, I think Savannah represents vengeance. You know, he's he's given his life over to showing his father that he was wrong about him, that that Savannah's father was wrong about Savannah, even that the wizard was wrong about him. Mm-hmm. And to take what was denied him as a gift, you know, he is his life ambition is to take it by force and have it nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And so self-centeredness, vengeance, uh, those are those are the ways fallenness enters into this film. You mentioned that scene in the office. You know, it, it's pretty dramatic the way Savannah takes his vengeance. Uh, it's pretty dramatic when he snatches his brother up and just throws him out the, the window of a skyscraper. Mm-hmm. But then we have all that stuff you were talking about where uh, basically these monsters who Savannah has brought with him, known as the Seven Deadly Sins, they um, they destroy everybody in the boardroom. And the last image we have uh, before the door closes on the boardroom finally is the um, the demonic manifestation, I think, of greed. Yeah. Walking over to the father who's a, you know, he's an invalid. He can't run away. And uh, begin to pummel him. And, like, the camera stays on that creature beating that old man for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, again, fallenness. But thankfully, this movie says fallenness is a problem. It's to be opposed. It, I mean, this movie recognizes evil for what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you say What would you say that the presentation of redemption is in Shazam? Uh, when people who have the power... To fight evil, do yeah. When they bind together to use their their powers, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So Billy learns to embrace the Foster family, even as the Foster family embraces him. Mm-hmm. He rejects the self centered way he'd been making use of his powers. Takes responsibility for those who are weaker than him and saves the day. Uh, what's the glorified better world that awaits on the far side of that, Jared? <clears throat> um. Evil's defeated. Uh, the seven deadly sins are back in their cages or prisons, and um, and there's a lot of Shazams. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> who can't say their own name? Hey, who saved you? Uh, the guy with a lightning bolt on his chest. What? Um. Well, I mean, what are we missing here, man? That was pretty simple, pretty quick. Is it just because this movie is? I mean, it's. I don't want to say it's simplistic. But kind of like a comic book, it, it paints with bright colors, right? Yeah, I mean the, the I mean it's it's a trope movie, you know. Mm. I mean I like it, but it's a you know with great power comes great responsibility, and that's what the movie's about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, guys, that is how we chop up the movie and start doing our analysis. <clears throat> um, we try to put that back together though by asking a series of questions. To kind of draw out the best that's available to us as believers looking at this story, if there is anything. And so the first story we ask is, what is the story of this movie? And we want to work really hard to get that right. And uh, we hope we've done that. Kind of in the big themes we talked about through uh, our worldview analysis. Um, Jared, the second question there is, where am I? And we want to see the style and shape of the imaginary world. Uh, Where are you at in this movie? I man, I identified with the. I think the most moral person in the movie is the foster mom and dad. 
Oh, okay. Um, and um, so I want to be Shazam, but I mean, he is—he's too immoral to to try to root for. Mm. Uh, I mean, I say that just from a Christian perspective, and not only that, but the inner logic of the movie. When you can't have, you can't have Shazam or Billy going to a strip club when one of the seven deadly sins is lust. Like, yeah, that's such a great point, man. I didn't even think about that. Um, I mean, like it's hypocrisy. Like he is like if the point was to show, as you pointed out earlier, that his father is a hypocrite by placing the blame on his son then this is another form of hypocrisy. Like you're having someone who is lustful coming against the seven deadly sins and winning. Like, how does that work? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that is a great point that I had not considered, but the character is already, you know, the the big, um, you know, the big conflict in this movie, which they kind of make, they make uh, a little bit of fun of at the end, but it's, you know, will Billy succumb to the temptation of the, the seven deadly sins and the power they offer him, right? Mm-hmm. And you're right. He very much does so right up front. That's uh, that's pretty startling. I, I didn't think about it at all. They joke about it. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's just odd the, as far as a story, right? Mm-hmm. To, like, if he was greedy. Well, maybe, you know, now that I think about it, Maybe he repents of all of those seven deadly sins because um, it because pride holds him back at one point. Greed, you know, he he's using his talents for money. Um, envy, maybe being jealous of. Well, who would he be jealous of though? Um, I don't know. I'm just trying to think well, through he, now. That he um, he steals the batarang from Freddie. I know that that's not quite, you know, directly okay. envy, but that's an that's the act of an envious person, right? I'll take what so, you have that I want. The bullet, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, it was a bullet. It wasn't a batarang. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good. So what are what are the other seven deadly? What are the other deadly sins? Um, I think you're onto something here. And by the way, just while we're talking about it, this is this is always part of the Captain Marvel or Shazam um, origin story. Uh, Shazam has a a deeply um, like theological origin story. You know, he gets his, he gets his powers from a donation of patron gods, which some of them are classic mythology, Zeus and Achilles, things like that. Um, But one of the gifts he's supposed to get is the wisdom of Solomon. Mm. And so, you know, the, this is a product of the 1940s Judeo-Christian Motifs were very much welcome in popular culture in a positive way, mm-hmm. uh, but the seven deadly sins has to be drawing on you know, the biblical record of sins that God hates and He highlights. Um, right. I can't remember the text. Give me a second. I'll find that. But the the seven deadly sins are lust, greed, envy, um, pride, pride, sloth, gluttony. Did I name anger? And wrath. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, just to give those all together again, pride, envy, greed, anger, sloth, gluttony, lust. And those are variously described as either the seven deadly sins in the comic book or the seven deadly enemies of men. As we just mentioned, these are clearly a reference to uh, Proverbs 6.16 through 19. Um, Mm -hmm. There's additional. So there's six in the Proverbs text. Seven in the Shazam canon, but 
If you're not familiar with the Proverbs 6 passage, it's there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. So there's the, the additional seven, one that's highlighted in some way. Uh, starting in verse 17, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And so uh, that motif, again, um, clearly undergirding these concepts. Um, So so I'm thinking like, uh, I think gluttony and wrath, um, perhaps wrath against his friend, and then gluttony, maybe it could just be not necessarily food, but just excess of... Well, I mean, you remember, I think you're onto something here. Maybe people are going to accuse us of stretching it too thin, but uh, I think this is possible. The first thing they do when they get the powers is they go hit a, a convenience store to buy beer and a mm-hmm. bunch of, like, junk food and snacks, right? Oh, yeah, and they do eat a ton of uh, beef jerky. They even make a statement that, well, you can die. His friend says you can die from eating too much beef jerky or something like something that. Something like that, yeah, yeah. And he says, worth it. Right, uh, right. So maybe, maybe that's what they were trying to show. Like he's, he's got these powers, and he is basically committing all the seven deadly sins. But then to defeat them, he has to repent. Yeah, reject them, overcome yeah. them, something like that. And yeah. he does that through friendship, uh, through family. friendship and family. Yeah. So the, I mean, I get, you know, anger. He, there's a couple different times. Like he crushes those bullies' trucks. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. He um, before he even gets his powers. One of the times that we start to think like there's more to this kid, which is maybe a weird thing to do to set up. But Freddie Freeman is getting picked on by these two bullies, and Billy picks up one of his crutches and just warps one of them across the face with it. Yeah. Um. So and you cheered. You cheered, right? Yeah, I was pretty happy about it. <laughs> I mean, is is that really that crazy? I mean, they've got a disabled kid getting beat up by two chads. Um. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a cheerable thing. So you may be onto something that Billy is a is a young man who has to um, has to grow in such a way that he rejects those seven deadly sins in order to be a champion who can overcome them and create a better world with his family. Yeah, that's very. I mean, that if that's true, that makes me like the movie much more because it brings it over into the real world. Like, like we are. Then I would identify with Shazam, like that, like they're. The way you overcome these sin or any sin is to repent, turn from it, and we've got to trust in someone greater. Now it's not it's not family and friends, but Jesus Christ is the answer, you know? Right, right. And you know, specifically what do you do when you've repented of your sin, you've rejected that, you've called out to Christ as Savior and kneeled to him as Lord. You know, to to um to walk in a way that honors him, you cultivate virtue. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, the uh, the seven deadly sins are a good mirror to actual virtue, right? So pride uh, is a corruption and distortion of, or excuse me, not corruption and distortion, but it, it pulls in opposition to humility, um, greed pulling in, in the opposite direction of self-sacrifice, anger with patience, sloth with diligence, you know, mm-hmm. gluttony with... Um, Perpiscuity, right? Or, or, or not perpiscuity? What's the what's the term of like good self governance? It's escaped me right now. But where you're, you know, you're mindful of not doing anything to the excess, doing everything in a healthful fashion. Uh, lust, being a sober, sobriety is a good synonym for it too. 
Um, yeah, lust with love. Um, inverse of envy would be what? I feel like envy and jealousy are far too often not clearly defined, and I'm just as guilty as everyone else. Contentment. Contentment. There you go. Good job, Jared. You're you're a more virtuous man than I, and I'm not surprised to learn that. So um, <laughs> I, I don't think we could. You and I should be in a virtue contest. <laughs> um, we both lose. <laughs> right, but I mean, again, we're we're sort of talking about the the way that men under the sun uh, seek to live a God glorifying life is to reject these vices and embrace virtue. Mm-hmm. And and you also see some of that with Billy, right? Like he mm-hmm. um, he gives his powers. Uh, rather than being greedy, he invites these other people into his life. Um, he uses them not to to gain money um, through selfies and celebrity, but to save the innocent and fight evil. I, I think you're onto something that Billy becomes. Billy moves from uh, a young man of vice into uh, a champion of virtue. And like you, now that we've kind of worked this out together here on uh, on this episode, I think I like the movie even better. Mm-hmm. It was very subtle, though. Those are it. I mean, it never mentioned. It doesn't even. It doesn't even ever mention the seven deadly sins that I'm aware of. It just kind of presupposes them, and so you don't know that he's. I don't know. They don't telegraph it, you know. Yeah, but again, that's if that's what's going on here. That's kudos to Sandberg because he's not beating you over the head with it, but he's rewarding a careful reflection on the movie. Mm-hmm. So. Um, we may be wrong, but I'm going to go with this until we're, you know, demonstrably wrong because it does make it a better movie. It does. And I, it, I mean, it makes sense, too, why he's him hawing around for so long. Right, right. I feel like it took him forever to finally come around. and. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm you with know? you, man. And see, that's the problem with the Jeff Johns material. Like this <clears throat> stuff I've mentioned on here before, so I won't stay long, but this is the ultimate wish fulfillment scenario. Little kid says a magic word and becomes Superman. John's mm-hmm. titled that story, The Curse of Shazam. Um, and then, you know, Billy Batson was always the most noble character in the story. You were always glad to root for him. Uh, Jeff Johns's version of Billy Batson is, is much worse than David Sandberg's. Batson is self-centered, a jerk, violent, full of temper, suspicious. You know, he's just awful. And I think for people who really love Captain Marvel, that was the greatest offense that Johns gave that that he turned Billy Batson into someone you didn't want to root for. Sandberg, thankfully, shows a redemptive arc. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think we've been doing some of question three already here, uh, but what's good, true, and awesome? How do we behold common grace in this movie? Um, I like the cautionary tale um, of uh, Dr. Savina. Is that how I say his name? Savannah. Savannah. Yeah. Um, I thought that was well done as far as the cautionary tale of trying to Basically, trying to please ghosts or trying to pl- trying to live to please someone else's opinion or to prove someone wrong. I know yeah. we all. I mean, that's a desire for revenge, right? Um, it's kind of a sideways desire for revenge, and it, it reminded it reminds me of. Uh, I remember. Do you remember Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame speech? Oh yeah, man. Yeah, that that sent shockwaves at the time. Oh yeah, and it just. I mean, you talk about a cautionary tale of like, dude, you're the greatest basketball player of all time, and you want to stand up at the Hall of Fame and and point out like, good grief, you talk about a a chip on your shoulder. What a what a miserable way to live. And now I bet he's, I bet you money he's miserable because he he's not the best GM ever, the best owner ever. 
Um, yeah, I feel like we have some responsibility as people there because that's the exact trait that drove Jordan to the greatness we all celebrated. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's kind of hip- hypocritical on our part to like watch him as an older man be like, man, why couldn't you turn that off? You know, we spent so many years reinforcing it in you and celebrating it and rewarding it. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to act like you should be able to flip that switch. And I just think that's hypocritical on our part. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was a good point, though, as far as the cautionary tale of living to please other people. And then he ended up becoming exactly what he hated in his father, you know. Yeah, um, absolutely. or worse, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's just it's odd that greed devoured. It was kind of a juxtaposition, right, where he had greed devour his father because his father was obviously greedy. But Dr. Savannah was <laughs> – I mean, he was all seven deadly sins, right? I mean, yeah. personified type thing. Like, so that that was strange. Um, so I didn't understand that. But um, on the flip side, well, I did think we, it was thoughtful to make envy the last one that inhabited him. You know what I'm saying? Like that was that was his driving motivation, and it's the one that gotcha. that did not leave his body until the very end, until it was goaded out by mm-hmm. by Billy or by Shazam. When he said uh, he need he when he found out there was a champion, he immediately tried to find him and I've got to have his power. Yep, I've got to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's well done. Um, I enjoyed the Foster family. I mean, as far as the love that was displayed there, um, you know these these kids that evidently had been rejected at various points by their own families. We don't know the backstory from the others, but. The fact that they were able to come together and be a family. I mean, I know it's cheesy, you know, it's a movie, but, um, you know, that that gives me hope for for families that that are brought together that way, you know? Non-traditional, yeah. Well, I mean, not necessarily non-traditional, but families that, um, I don't I don't necessarily like that non-traditional language. Oh, yeah, but, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Um, I just mean... Um, Foster adoption, whatever the right terminology is for that. Yeah, yeah, not, whatever. Not brought like, about through procreation or at right, least entirely right. by procreation. Yeah, right. But it's still definitely a legit family full of love and kindness and sisters and brothers and parents and um, even and as Christians, girl. we're deeply we're deeply happy to see fostering and adoption presented well because we believe that basically the solution to everything that's wrong with us is that God would adopt us into his family. Right. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, right. I don't mean to betray anybody with that non-traditional language. I'm, I'm not trying to throw any shade. I I think it's the gospel. God God brings sinners into his family through his son. So, mm-hmm. anyway. Right, right. I, I enjoyed that. I thought that was great. Um, I enjoyed the humor. I thought the humor was well done. But, you know, again, I thought it was a little slower um, as far as, you know, I was waiting for him to kick. Like, I would have liked to have seen like 30 more minutes of him whipping people. Like, yeah, yeah. Just uh, more action, more fighting. Sure. Yeah. More, more big battles. And um, I did really like the emphasis on sin devouring people or yeah. killing people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I mean, I say, I don't mean I like that, but that is, that's what it does. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. You like it in the sense that it's true. It's telling, yeah. it's telling something that is realistic in the, in the fullest sense. 
I love I love seeing sin personified as monstrous. Mm-hmm. I mean those those monsters were scary, dude. That mm-hmm. one tall devil looking winged creature thing. Goodness. Yeah. I think that's uh-huh. the one who pummels the old man to death, I think, if I remember rightly. But anyway, again, Sandberg really knows how to bring the horror to bear on this movie. Oh yeah, yeah. And um so I thought all that was I thought all that was good. And then him him being able to overcome overcome uh those things by rejecting them, but also by like you're talking about pursuing pursuing virtue you know i mean it's it's repentance i mean it's letting go and grabbing a hold right um you know your repentance is the letting go and then faith is the you know grabbing hold of something that's contrary to what you're letting go of but yeah and i mean of course it's a secular vision of repentance and sanctification but in the image of god we have the capacity although we you know we we uh suppress the truth and unrighteousness we nonetheless have the capacity to recognize evil as evil and what is good as as good, we can't fully embrace it in a way that is redemptive and saving. But you know, right. in civic righteousness, people can make gains right uh, towards goodness and away from evil. Yes, civil good versus we're. I mean, we all agree. I mean, you and I agree that there's no saving good. That's not what this movie's focused on. Um, but we agree that this is definitely civil good. I mean, with somebody. I mean, good grief if. Um, you know, if the, I don't know, if the Church of Satan came out against abortion, I would say amen, you know? Yeah. Um, and then try to evangelize them while we're standing around, you know, absolutely. trying to lobby a legislator. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But um, th- those were the main things. I thought they got, I thought they got sin right. And I was going to be critical, and I was critical at the beginning about um, about him going to the strip clubs. And I still think they, if he if he is trying to show repentance of that, out of all the th- the sins that we mentioned, that's the one that is the least repentant, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, because they just kind of laugh it laugh off. It, laugh it off, like. And as you pointed out earlier, the the other foster kid who says, "Not my thing," you know. But but maybe I mean, if we're you know this repentance motif, maybe that's him. I don't know. I don't know. Could be coming coming at it against you know not lusting, right? Yeah, I wish that was the case. I, I I think they will set that up to be just what everybody you know thinks it is. But it, there, if there's a world out there, an alternative universe out there where Pedro simply chooses to live uprightly in his sexuality, uh, the way like virtuous men do. I mean, you know, even people who aren't Christians can see through objectification of women, exploitation of women, and and choose even like monogamy in a sexually licentious culture and see the value of that. So uh, if there's a world out there like that, I'd like to visit it for a while and watch that movie. Mm. Uh, well, what's distorted evil and false here? How can I subvert idolatry? Um, One, I mean, the, there's no one really, I guess the wizard at the beginning is the one who's virtuous. Um, in the whole movie, he's the most virtuous individual. Yeah, see, I don't. I guess I don't see him that way because he's so spastic. Like he clearly mm-hmm. pushes Savannah onto the path of evil. You know what I mean? He like he he's not wise. He he plays right into the gotcha, abusive yeah. voice of the of the father. So like you know, we're supposed to think of the wizard as this inheritor of a legacy that should be passed on, and I just think they undermine it quite a bit with. With that opening scene, mm-hmm. and the the losing of power, and I think the idol is basically secular humanism, right? Man can fix himself type thing. 
um, you know, I, I, that's what I that's what I'm leaning towards. That be good for goodness' sake. Yeah, universal thing. brotherhood of mankind. Yeah, you know, if we come together, we can overcome any enemy. Yeah, yeah, and like the. You know, some of the stuff we've said where it's not like a simplistic movie, but it's painting with bright colors. It's kind of a simplistic uh, presentation of of the virtue we should seek after. Again, that universal brotherhood of mankind. But you kind of give it that for being a uh, a bright, flashy comic book movie that's not trying to be a complex morality tale. Mm-hmm. Well, the last question then, Jared, is how does the gospel apply? I think Jesus is so much better than every super superhero or wizard in this movie. Like, so think of the wizard and how his power is fading, and the power of Christ doesn't fade. Um, you know, I'm thankful that He is God the Son incarnate. And what's interesting is that in being God the Son, you know, He He never gains or loses power. Mm-hmm. Um, but pertaining to His humanity. Um, you know, as as you read in Hebrews and um, as we read in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, you know, Jesus starts the Great Commission uh, with all authority has been given to me. Um, so it's pertaining to his humanity because he's finished the work his father's given him to do. He, he is Lord of creation. And um, so he run, he does not run out of um, he doesn't grow weaker and then pass it on to someone else. Um, which I didn't understand that logic in the movie, anyways. Um, so now Shazam is is all powerful, like the wizard used to be, but I guess his power will diminish too. Um, and how can you, if he's transferring his power, why didn't he? How is Shazam not weak like the wizard? Right? Yeah, he could lose it. Right? Yeah, yeah. If if he so if he transferred his power to Billy, why wasn't? it the weak power like why is it all of a sudden now like the wizard used to be you know mm-hmm. um but anyway and so jesus is better than the wizard um i mean that wizard couldn't do anybody any good he can't even effectively call hashtag calvinism drop <laughs> no he can't he can't um but then he's better than billy because billy is well he, as the he, wizard says what He'll have to do like he—he's a—he's a yeah. young man who needs redemption. Jesus doesn't need re- redemption, right? He's like you're all—you're all I've got, Billy Bats, Bats, Batson. Um, I just thought that was—that was interesting, funny, sad, really, because there's none virtuous, no, not one, none righteous. I mean, none righteous, no, not one, none seeketh after God. There's none good, and um. It's just interesting. So if you think of how many years that wizard was searching for someone who was virtuous, mm-hmm. and, he did, and he didn't find anybody, so he was left with Billy. So he's left with someone who's not righteous. Yeah. I mean, uh, shades of who can ascend the hill of the Lord, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they and so the movie says we need, at least for years and years and years, says we need someone. But then the argument is, no, we just need someone who's a little bit... Well, not a little bit, but someone who is not as sinful as Doctor Savannah, mm-hmm. um, I guess. Or and I guess I can use sinful. That's what the movie's talking about right. because of the seven deadly sins. Um, I wonder if the director's Catholic. I don't think so. I don't. I mean, I've I've followed him as a horror uh, consumer for a number of years, and I've never seen him reference religion in any way. Hmm. Because seven deadly sins are pretty heavy. 
I mean, it's heavily emphasizing Catholicism, right? Am I right about that? Yeah, I believe so. But I think really he's porting that in from the source material. I really don't think that you can get away from it from the comic book stuff. Because, like I said, every origin story, uh, even Jeff Johns's, you know, bad version makes use of that. That's one of the things that's great about Captain Marvel and Shazam. Like there are clear moral lines that are that are surprisingly traditional. Hmm. So if Jesus is better than the wizard. He's better than Shazam. Um, I mean, he's more virtuous. He's more righteous. He doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't go back and forth, and he definitely doesn't. I mean, he is pure in heart. You know, uh-huh. uh, I mean, he is he is the one that we need, the only one who can save us. And uh, as much as our family, you know, if we want to save family and friends. Um, we can we can uh, bring about the better world through family and friends only if they are as virtuous as Christ is, hmm. um, because otherwise they will let you down and you will let them down. And they're you know, it will not bring about the better world. And so we need Jesus to clean us up and praise be to God. That's what he's doing. And he will finish what he started in all of us. And so. I mean, there there is a better world coming, and it's the world this movie longs for. But it, but based on its own worldview, it can't produce it. That's true. I mean, you, you know what I'm saying? Like the wizard at the beginning is searching for someone pure in heart, and then they finally say, "Well, we don't really need someone pure in heart." <laughs> you know, pureish. Pureish. Yeah, <laughs> we need someone pureish in heart. <laughs> yeah, that's that's well said, man. Absolutely. Um, I just point to like this is what superhero movies do well. They tell us that there really is evil. We need a savior. Um, it's not within us. Like we need a champion. We need someone from outside. And uh, these problems are too big for us. We have a role to play, but ultimately we're dependent upon Christ to win the victory. And uh, I think I think that's why these movies continue to do really well in the box office. They're like one of the few ways that our culture still gets to bump up against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I, I expect that when people keep calling for superhero fatigue, I think that, you know, maybe that will come someday. It's hard to think there will be like, you know, Avengers for real this time. It's the end in 20 years. Uh-huh. But I do think well done superhero movies are going to resonate in uh, particularly in a secular culture because they're kind of the closest we get to what God's actually doing in Jesus. Uh-huh. There's a, one more thing I want to point out, and I probably should have pointed it out earlier, but hey, this is a good time to do that. We're we're going to move into wrap up. Anything else to say? So lay it on me. Yeah, Doctor Savannah, um, the sin is what gave him power. Sure. Um, and uh, I mean that's a that's an interesting concept to think that envy, pride, greed, lust, all those things. I mean, you you can actually. That that can give that does give many people power. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the root of the temptation for those things, like mm-hmm. um, lust. Pretty clearly, you can have sexual gratification, uh, sexual lust. Anyway, you can have sexual gratification outside the parameters that God has established. So you get to say yes to what God has said no about mm-hmm. envy and coveting. Same deal, right? You may not be able to take your neighbor's property, but you can fantasize about what it would be like to have it and, and to take it. Uh, it's it's all perverse versions, but it, it's an attempt to have what God has said is forbidden, which is an attempt to be your own God. Yeah, yeah. I, I think 
I think I would have liked to have seen those sins destroyed and Dr. Savannah die um, at the end of the movie. Yeah, I get why they don't do that, though. One, you know, the I think one of the things that's compelling about the mythology of Shazam is that these sins can be restrained, but mm-hmm. until Christ returns, we would know. But, like, the people who don't have a vision of a catastrophic intervention by Christ, they would think the sins can be restrained, but they are always a threat to return, right? Mm-hmm. And then with Savannah... It is good for the hero to say, you're not going to get justice, you're going to get mercy. Mm-hmm. So I'm with you. I get that Like, if, if Shazam really is a full-on Christ figure, he cuts the serpent's head off and ends sin. But I think Shazam, as we, you've talked about, Jesus is better. Shazam's a lesser Christ figure, and so the redemption mm-hmm. that he brings is necessarily lesser. Mm-hmm. I was thinking just for the for the this is where sin leads like it leads to death it leads to the grave it leads to well it did betray him right when envy bailed out on him it left him to drop off the side of a building that's right and he was that's right and Shazam saved him yeah 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 I I enjoy the movie I enjoy it better after we've talked about it me too Um, me too you've really unlocked this thing for me in a way that is helpful so I appreciate that. I appreciate you helping me think through these things because it's um, the pushback and it's just helpful, man, to sit down and talk. And I mean, this this will be this is a good movie to watch with your teenager and to discuss the deceptiveness of sin and um, the pursuit of virtue and to look at talk about repentance, what it is and what it isn't. I mean, this movie really gives a lot of fodder for those discussions. Yep, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Good to use as examples of virtue and vice. I mean, all the all the things we've been talking about in this episode. So, uh, yeah, I like this one better. I would have figured I'd seen this multiple times by now, but um, I haven't. I think you've talked me into wanting to go see it again. So maybe I'll figure out some time in my schedule. Maybe it's time to take my six-year-old to see this after all. Yeah. And cover his eyes a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Well, anything else to say on Shazam? That's it, buddy. All right, man. Well, where can our listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter at Jared H. Moore. You can find me on Facebook at All Truth is God's Truth. I've got another podcast. I've been noticing the numbers uh, ticking up a little bit. Maybe you folks are listening some. I've neglected it for about a year and a half, but it's called All Truth is God's Truth. Check it out. You can find Jeff and I on um, our Facebook group, Pop Culture Quorum Deo Perpetual After Party. That's right. Uh, come, come, come discuss uh, Shazam with us, other movies, and what movies you'd like to see us review. 100%. We would love to hear from you. Uh, we're on most social media platforms everywhere. Basically, the handle is PC CD Pod. So reach out to us. We'd really appreciate it if you would take time now, the next time you're sitting in front of a keyboard to leave us a review on wherever you're getting your podcasts Google Podcast, um, Apple Podcasts, anything uh, that you could do in that, that front, we would really appreciate. So if you can give us a five star review, we'd be very thankful. But if you say, hey, good conscience, can't give you five stars, give us what you can. It helps us know how to. Taylor, the, the podcast to uh, to serve people, because that's what we want to do. We want to serve the church, and it helps us know what is helpful, what's not helpful. Um, so we would greatly appreciate that. It also gives 
New listeners a chance to find us through the mysterious algorithms of those podcast services. Uh, I'm at Right Jeff on any social media platform that uh, that you might find yourself on. I think I'm I'm there as well. So I'd love to connect with you. And we are we're planning to keep this train rolling. Uh, Jared, what's coming out next that we're going to take a look at? Do you know yet? Uh, Lorona, the Curse of La Lorona from James Wan. Uh, Father of the Conjuring franchise, I think we, I think they've come out and said now that La Llorona is part of the Conjuring universe. So uh, we're going back to the world of scary movies, and I'm excited, man. I love a good scary movie. Me too, buddy. Me too. And the Conjuring needs something good, don't they? Yeah, man. The Nun was the Nun was like <laughs> the uh, the movie equivalent of Pope Francis's papacy. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, right there. Yeah. Both of them, both of them corrupted by Romanish uh, craziness. Anyway, this is the uh, the episode of the rant by Jeff, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna put a bow on it, folks. So we'll be back with you to talk about the curse of La Llorona, and we appreciate you listening. Uh, for Jared Moore, I am Jeff Wright, and we want to encourage you to live every moment as if you are before the face of God, because you are. We'll talk to you next time.